Hello everyone, my name is Laia Struck. This podcast takes flight with words from my work Ocells Perduts, Vol 67. Episode 4 of Season 4 on Stage. The work is a video of a performance that I made in June 2022 at Los Sotos de la Albolafia, a complex habitat of riverine forest and small islands created as the Guadalquivir River flows through the city of Córdoba. I developed the performance through a practice of intensive studio and live rehearsals. I have tried to come closer to an aerial state and the vocalizations of birds by listening to their calls and attuning myself to their songs, attempting to reproduce them with my voice and my body. My practice uses the voice as its primary device and instrument. I'm interested in learning new ways of working with orality and listening, often while inhabiting and encountering sculptural structures as a form of a score or potential archive. In this case, by paying particular attention to the relationship between my body and the riverbank, and by being sensitized to the possibility of birds as interlocutors, the entire habitat for me became a kind of a score, and the performance evolved as a slow inhabitation and collaboration with the flows of the ecosystem, whether the flight of the swallows or the movement of the river's waters. During the research process, I talked with local ornithologists and environmental managers, as well as shepherds, musicians, and vocal coaches, yet the performance is less about specializations or human perspectives and knowledge than the possibility of reaching out with sounds and silences towards our avian kin on their terms, expanding the spectrum of possible communication and interrelations. The Catalan title, Ocells Perduts, translates as Stray Birds, which is a collection of micropoems by Rabindranath Tagore, published in 1916. It begins. Stray birds of summer come to my window to sing and fly away, and yellow leaves of autumn which have no songs, flatter and fall there with a sigh. O troop of little vagrants of the world, leave your footprints in my words. Those were the words of Laia Estruk. I'm Max Andrews, and this TBA 21 Onstage podcast takes flight from Laia's work into the realm of birds looking at politics and practices that disrupt dominant historical narratives and exceed scientific and cultural boundaries. My guests are Alex Holt, a spokesperson for Bird Names for Birds, a movement to decolonize bird names, and Hollis Taylor, a zoomusicologist specializing in birdsong. Through their perspectives, we glimpse new and speculative kinds of human-bird narratives what we might call minor ornithologies, a term I borrow from Anna-Sophie Springer and Etienne Turpin's book, 
these birds of temptation, the reference to which can be found in Laia's TBA 21 onstage research cluster. The dialogue between human cultures and birds has been afforded a special relationship throughout history. Their sounds and behaviours have long been intimately reflected in art, music, literature and dance. Humans have of course exploited birds as a resource for thousands of years, whether eating their eggs and flesh, wearing their feathers and skins as clothing, or converting them into decorations, instruments, weapons or fertiliser. Birds are shot for food and for sport, as well as trained to kill other animals. They have served as our pets and our companions, our muses and our entertainment. A 2019 study published in the journal Nature the latest in a series of dire warnings, reported that almost one-third of the wild bird population has been lost since 1970, estimated at over 2.9 billion individual birds. One in eight bird species is now threatened with extinction. Avifaunas are an extremely sensitive indicator of environmental health. Birds are better known and more widely studied than any other group of animals. Ornithology, the study of birds, having evolved from the egg-collecting and taxidermy of the 19th century, now encompasses a broad coalition of amateurs and enthusiasts, activists, conservationists, birdwatchers, birders and eco-tourists. Observing birds is an increasingly popular leisure pursuit. In this podcast, I want to explore some possibilities and potentialities of thinking and acting with birds and their knowledges in a multidimensional way, beyond or outside both their representations as scientific objects and their statuses as passive subjects for human exceptionalism, for projecting our imaginations and values. In the first part, we'll look at some of the work that decolonial and anti-racist movements are doing in the bird world, with guests Alex Holt, and in the second part, with Hollis Taylor, we'll delve into birdsong, mimicry, memory and narrativity. What does the name of a bird have to do with responding effectively and meaningfully to issues of social justice? Following a practice established by Carl Linnaeus in the 1750s, the two-part taxonomic name of an animal or a plant is the one used within scientific contexts. Yet vernacular names are the predominant way that most people who appreciate and celebrate birds as part of their lives in a non-professional context talk and communicate about different bird species. These common names, too, have their own universally accepted systemization, depending on language. The standardized English names of birds most often invoke some distinguishing feature of the bird, whether its appearance, such as golden-winged warbler, or thick-billed lark, or its habitat or behavior, marsh owl or wall creeper, for example. Yet there are hundreds of examples of so-called eponymous or honorific namings, in short, birds that were named after people. By the beginning of the 19th century, the practice had become widespread, and it was not just the ornithologists who first described a bird for Western science who were honoured in this way, but a host of individuals, whether naturalists, museum directors, explorers, collectors, soldiers, patrons or priests, these names paint a picture of the practices of early natural history as it intertwined with European nations' exploration, settlement and exploitation of large areas of the world. Names were bestowed on species as a kind of public recognition, 
in the same way that mountains or other geographical features were often named after celebrated military figures. Thus, British colonial India is readable through the avifauna of the subcontinent, and names such as Blythe's Pippet, Hume's Warbler, or Jerdan's Corsa. The European search for the Northwest Passage and the opening up of the Arctic is written in the names of three gull species, Franklin's gull, Ross's gull, and Sabine's gull. This proprietary inscribing, particularly the naming of non-human animals after white colonial men, has long had its critics, and in recent years a momentum has built to reassess and reform the names of birds where they give merit to individuals with a particularly questionable history. Yet a fundamental principle of scientific naming is stability, and while names sometimes have to be changed to reflect new science when new species are recognised, proposed changes have to be submitted following a formal request to the relevant authorities. In the United States, for example, these procedures are overseen by the North American Classification and Nomenclature Committee of the American Ornithological Society. To date, just one proposal has succeeded in changing a bird's common English name as part of a reckoning with and rectification of its association with a historical person linked with prejudice and discrimination. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Bird Names for Birds is a grassroots, community-centred initiative that started in the US in 2020. It campaigns to change the names of birds that commemorate people who participated in a heavily exploitative period of history. In fact, the movement would eventually like to see the removal of all eponymous bird names. Bird Names for Birds also works with stakeholders and authorities to create a naming or renaming process that is more accountable, equitable diverse and inclusive. My first guest is Alex Holt, the Historical Biographies Project co-lead for Bird Names for Bird. Hi Alex, uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. How did you get involved with Bird Names for Birds and what does your role involve? I mean, to be honest, it was somewhat a chance I got involved. I was initially sort of being aware of the discussion around the John McCown on Twitter, basically. It got me kind of interested in sort of who these other people were, because like their names I, in my sort of birding career, had seen around a lot, but I didn't really know who most of them were. So me and um, Jess McLaughlin basically started making a spreadsheet to sort of like work out who these people were. And then we sort of got sort of scooped up in the broader bird names for bird movements and then that spreadsheet became the basis of these uh, historical biographies so we're basically writing articles to actually explore who these people were. In 2020 a small bunting-like bird of the prairies of of central US and and into northern Mexico was officially changed from being known as McCown's Longspur to a new name the Thick-Billed Longspur. And Bird Names for Birds was instrumental in in pressurising for this change. Uh, As the organisation is keen to emphasise, it's not just about this one bird, but as you said, it is the beginning of the organisation's story. So just to give a brief background for our listeners, in 1851, this bird was originally named after John McCown, a military man and specimen collector who became infamous for his leading roles in the Confederacy uh, during the American Civil War, where he was fighting to preserve slavery. What was the background to to the decision to change the name and what was their new research that had come to light? Um, Personally, I don't think it was necessarily so much that new research come to light. It's just that the sort of the moment 
sort of had hit critical mass. The gentleman named uh, Robert Driver had sort of written a proposal in 2018, which had been rejected, and then in 2020 was asked to sort of rewrite it, and that is the one that ended up being accepted. In terms of the sort of bird names and birds role in this, we have sort of more functioned as like a sort of a microphone for these sort of changes as much as in that particular instance as so much as the sort of driving force in itself but I think it was just that sort of singular moment with everything following the sort of George Floyd's murder sort of everything was sort of coming to a head and it was that moment when these monuments were sort of being questioned properly for the first time perhaps. Ornithology now encompasses a really broad coalition of amateurs and enthusiasts, activists conservationists, bird watchers, birders, twitchers, eco-tourists. It's an increasingly popular leisure pursuit. Did you detect a leave politics out of my hobby, a resistance from some members of the birding community? What has been the response to the decision and your work? Very much so from some quarters. There was a point where we were sort of hitting the, I mean, I don't want to say the headlines, but we were sort of like turning up in sort of internationally noted uh, media and sort of, you could see the sort of responses that were sort of like tricking down through the bird communities <laughs> to those, and not all of them were enthused by our efforts, let's say. But it's kind of varied. I I feel like there is a general skew within the birding community that there are some people who are quite traditionalist, and that tended to be the quarters from which that came from. And I think to some degree, I've had sort of the less be less of the target of some of the this material as some of the other people involved because I am. Um, comparatively the the least famous person of the group on twitter <laughs> so it's sort of flown beneath the radar a little but even there like uh, there was one instance where i was sort of out birding and i did overhear people talking about it and i was like do i do i mention this is me doing this and i in the moment i decided against it but it, they didn't seem overly keen but it was kind of there were definitely people having strong opinions in sort of both directions driven by campaigns to address colonial and racial injustices Many monuments and statues that commemorated contentious individuals have been removed from the public sphere in recent years, whether the dismantling of the Confederate monuments in the US, the removal of the statue of Antonio Lopez in Barcelona in 2018, or in the UK, the toppling of the statue of of Colston, Edward Colston in Bristol in 2020. Do you think you can draw a direct line between the campaign to remove and alter bird names towards efforts to remove other forms of public memorialization associated with white supremacy? Um, very much so. I mean, I, in sort of conversations I've had, I have referred to these as sort of verbal monuments in a lot of ways. They are not quite as sort of obvious to the sort of the lay person as like a big statue of a slave owner or whatever. But the sort of fundamental principle is the same. It's like, it is a memorial honestly a lot of cases to some rather vile people and in some ways they're not even particularly good monuments because these aren't things that most people are going to be seeing day to day there is an aspect that if say in the case of McCown like most people aren't going to be talking about a small prairie bird regularly so this is just this this memorial of this confederate just stuck there potentially in perpetuity without being questioned until comparatively recently. The lives of those commemorated in bird names often reveal ornithology's complicity with European imperialism and settler colonialism and there are many other horrible examples such as John Townsend, an ornithologist born in in Philadelphia in the early 19th century 
who desecrated Native American burial grounds and whose name persists in the birds Townsend's warbler as well as Townsend's solitaire. But bird names for birds contends that we should replace all eponymous names, not just the obviously problematic one. What's the thinking behind that? There is, to a degree, like slight different nuances depending on who you ask that question to i think ultimately though is like there's no reason we should be the arbiters or any given person should be the arbiter of like who is acceptable any more so than establishment now the birds are some or and for that matter other species are something that is more fundamental to our world than the contributions of any one individual for good or ill and to sort of like tie them to that sort of albatross of a legacy is not really fair to them <laughs> or the way we treat them and hopefully we can by sort of wiping the slate clean we can reset the clock a bit taxonomy and species status can often confer greater legal protection if a bird that is recognized as a full species is under threat rather than something that's regarded as a subspecies or a local variation it literally matters more to the economies of funding and conservation likewise could the whole process of naming be subverted in terms of the use of naming rights in order to raise funds for environmental protection of a certain bird? I looked into this and actually there is some precedent and it sounds like a rather bizarre satire, but in 2004, a new species of primate was discovered in Bolivia and an online casino paid $650,000 to a non-profit that managed the forest reserve where it lived in order to name it the goldenpalace.com monkey. Naming is a peculiar kind of assertion of power, as you suggested, but could that power be hacked for good causes? And I think the answer to that is yes, but it's a very dangerous thing to be doing. <laughs> I don't think I could my authority on the subject is any in any position to say make an absolute like this is unacceptable ever because ultimately a species survival is more important than its naming the goldenpalace.com monkey is a particularly tacky example thereof but i think that if you were to do it i would think that limitations need to be placed on it honestly couldn't tell you what those limitations look like because it feels very much like the kind of somebody would find a way around it whatever rules were sort of imposed and i think that kind of protection needs to be balanced against not which it sounds somewhat trite the dignity of the species um, <laughs> i certainly wouldn't want to be in a situation where you're walking down the street and saying oh look it's a Google Hedgehog and a Amazon Pigeon or whatever. So it's sort of rather unpleasant corporate capitalistic dangers there, in my mind. As a last question, I'm curious what, um, in terms of your biographical works, what are you working on uh, at the moment? Is there particular research that you're engaged with, um, new avenues of um, investigation in the work of Bird Names for Birds? I mean, I must admit, we have slowed down a little bit, um, if only just because when we were first doing this, it was the middle of COVID. So personally, I was on um, furlough. So I was just like, well, let's spend this to my days writing these biographies, which is, isn't quite the amount of time I have available. I mean, for me personally, I do want to sort of finish off the list of all the European bird species. They're not as many proportionally as there are, for example, in the US, which is where a lot of bird names birds is focused as it's a bit more pressing 
in a lot of things, but I think that there is still history there that's quite interesting. And I would say also, I think there are some people who have said that we want to sort of erase this history. I actually would personally frame it as I want the opposite. I want this history to be known, and I want to do it justice, but I just don't want it memorialised in the way it's memorialised at the minute. And I think it's that sort of objective that I want to sort of bring to those European species going forward, hopefully. And you can find out more about the work of Bird Names for Birds, as well as read the biographies written by Alex and other members of the team on their website, birdnamesforbirds.wordpress.com. Now, we couldn't have a podcast accompanying the work of Laia Estruk without talking about the voice and performance. And in the case of her project for TBA 21 on stage, the voices in question are those of Laia, but of course, also those of birds themselves. French composer Olivier Messiaen famously studied and transcribed birdsong throughout his life and used his annotations as compositional material in several works, including the piano music that make up his Catalogue of Birds, composed between 1956 and 1958. The writer Yoko Tawada has noted that, before Messiaen, most European composers were really referring to mythology and imitating the refrains of bird sounds like the cuckoo rather than dealing with actual encounters with actual chirping or warbling lifeforms, such as those explored by Laia and my next guest. That was a recording made by Hollis Taylor of the incredible Pied Butcherbird, a black and white songbird native to Australia. Hollis has been researching birdsong for two decades. She is a violinist, composer, academic, field musicologist and author of Is Birdsong Music? Outback Encounters with an Australian Songbird, published in 2017. Hollis is a leading authority on zoomusicology, music theory applied to animal song and vice versa, and in particular the compositional work of the butcher bird and the vocalizations and mimicry of the superb lyre bird. And don't worry, that's not a bird named after Laia Struk, but because its tail looks similar to a lyre, the musical instrument. Hollis joins us now from Alice Springs in Australia's Northern Territory. Thanks for taking the time and welcome to stage. Birds have doubtless influenced music from its very inception, and birds have, of course, been making music long before humans evolved. Through your research on the pied butcher bird, how have you come to understand birdsong as a form of performance and birds' sense of themselves as performers? They are indeed performers, yes, but I would prefer to use the word musicians. Uh, And the musician in me recognizes the musician in Pied Butcher Birds. They all sing differently and they change their songs annually. And their virtuosic phrases are put together and pulled apart like snap together beads. So these are really minimalist composers 13 million years before Philip Glass. Um, We know that song pertains to maintaining a territory and securing a mate. It has function, but 
But what I've discovered is it often exceeds biological requirements. And I've documented a number of human overlaps, uh, like repetition with variation and familiar ideas to us of shape and balance, and phrases that remind us even of a human piece of music. So, for example, when they mob a possum by singing, that's a protest song. So whether it's vocal contests or serenades or whatever it is they're doing, these are the tasks that performers routinely deal with from whatever species. In your own work as a composer, you've made compositions based on um, your own analysis of, of bird songs, as well as combining field recordings of birds themselves with violins and other instruments. And many other musicians and artists with various degrees of earnestness or irony have set up situations in which they play along or with animals, um, going back to the British cellist Beatrice Harrison, whose recordings of her playing with nightingales in her garden were broadcast on the BBC radio in, back in uh, 1924. How you personally understand this limits of the notion of collaboration between humans and birds? I know some people believe that if we make music with songbirds, then we're one musical community. I don't perform with birds. I perform their music, as you said. These birds are occupied in the spring with songs that last up to seven hours. They could start as early as, as 11 at night and sing until the dawn. So we cannot underestimate the sheer athletic effort involved in squeezing out these sounds. And also we know that spring involves nests and nestling, so I'm not inclined to interrupt them. They suffer enough from that already. So this is, to my mind, not the time for an interspecies concert. Animal welfare really comes first. Switching to um, your work on, on the lyrebird, the lyrebird, the superb lyrebird, is known for, for its extraordinary capacity to mimic, to mimic the sounds of other birds' songs and calls. What is, as far as you understand, the biological function of this uh, stunning ability to accurately uh, copy and reproduce the sounds of the forest uh, that they inhabit? Yes, well, at least one-fifth of Australian songbirds mimic other species. And biologists don't know yet the function of avian mimicry. So your question is a good one, but, but we don't know. Likely there's more than one function, depending on the species. It clearly doesn't seem to be deceptive since you hear if you're standing or sitting wherever, bird or human, in the forest and you hear a number of species all clearly coming from one location every couple of seconds, you can't really be deceived. I've enjoyed speculating about the function of mimicry. With a good-sized repertoire of their own, why do they do this? And I've thought, is it an audio diary? Is it a, an insider joke? Is it a cover band? Who knows? And you've pointed out that this the famous scene from um, The Life of Birds, the, the David Attenborough documentary, in which there's a lyrebird who, which appears to be imitating man-made sounds, including a chainsaw, and this gives this uncanny sense that it's actually imitating the agents of the loss of its own habitat. But you've pointed out that that was actually filmed in Adelaide Zoo, and in any case, lyrebirds often make these strange and metallic sounds. But you've also looked at evidence of another lyrebird myth uh, from the 1920s. Uh, could you tell us about that? A lyrebird chick was raised in captivity in the 1920s, and it mimicked 
the household's flute player, which is variously described as the son or the father, and it learned two tunes and an ascending scale. And then this bird was released back into the wild, where his flute-like songs and timbre spread throughout the local lyrebird population, or so the story goes. So my research group mapped the flute lyrebird territory, which is all contiguous. It's all connected. And we also interviewed a number of witnesses. And in the end, half of the group were convinced of the story's veracity and the others weren't sure. One thing, though, is certain. Every winter, which is lyrebird singing season, this area resounds with flute-like timbres, contrapuntal scales, and melodic contours, which often exceed the musical competence of what a human could do. And these are completely different from the lyrebird songs everywhere else in the country. So how did it happen? We know they learn their song. It's not innate. It's quite remarkable to hear these birds. And were you on the side of the convinced or the unconvinced? I was definitely convinced. It's an incredible, beautiful story as well. Yes, and the other member of our group that was convinced was uh, was uh, knew the original people, so he was absolutely convinced, and he was the foremost library expert in Australia, so it was very convincing. And lastly, I wanted to ask you about the role of monitoring bird songs, and in general, being more aware of eco soundscapes. Uh, we might call them the sounds of birds around us. What that can teach us about the future of our avifauna. We increasingly understand the distribution of birds as a significant tool for measuring our environmental impact. You could say birdsong is a biomarker. It's an indicator of the condition of the bird. So a singing bird indicates that the individual is both present, but, but more important, in adequate condition to, to take the time and energy away from activities that might seem more basic to survival. So field recordings that I make and that others make are really powerful descriptors of animal health and diversity. And I'm right now in the middle of my recording season, and every time that I show up to every field site, I, I wonder, will the birds still be present? Will they sing? And for how long? Really, a bird's song goes right to the heart of our ethical responsibilities. As Hollis suggests, the more-than-human perspective that listening to birds gives us can help us to better grasp the many complexities and challenges that are transforming the conditions for all life and lives on this planet. The capacity for listening is one of the most essential characteristics in living beings. Listening more keenly means engaging more relationally and more reciprocally with the world as events rather than static things. As we heard in the interview with Alex Holt of Bird Names for Birds, organizations of traditional authority in the world of birds are rightly listening more carefully too. They're questioning the old legacies and practices of ornithology and realizing that there is still a lot of work to be done in order to increase diversity and equity and to create a more welcoming space, especially for those who have been historically marginalized. Minor ornithology might involve hearing apparently quieter or smaller stories in spite of the louder or more major ones, as well as identifying with the conditions of all the minority voices 
that have been overlooked within established orthodoxies and authorities. These multidisciplinary insights and diverse methodological approaches show how we can revise and reshape old trajectories and invent and imagine new methods to ecologize knowledge in more participatory and inclusive ways. Thank you for joining us on TBA 21 On Stage. We should, of course, give the last word to the birds themselves. Let's play out with the lyrebird and another sample from Hollis Taylor's amazing archive of avian musicality. This clip was recorded as part of her research into the flute lyrebird story that we discussed earlier. This lyrebird mimics the songs of other forest bird species, as well as two flute phrases, and was recorded at Enfield State Forest in Victoria, Australia, at 6.53am on the 16th of June, 2013. For more riveting content, please check out TBA21 on stage at www.stage.tba21.org. TBA21 on stage's editor-in-chief is Francesca Thiessen-Bornemitzer. Content curator, Soledad Gutierrez. Project manager, Nina Speranda. Curatorial assistant, John Aranguren. Audio editor, Alvaro Tior. Theme music, Carl Michael von Hauswolf. And I am Madeline Robinson. Thank you for listening. Oh, <laughs>